G'day and welcome to On The Road. My name's Scott Gibbons and On The Road is your show. It's a show where we, we travel, we go all around this great nation of ours, we talk about caravans, we talk about motorhomes, we talk about tents, places we can go, places we can see, places we can enjoy and it's just a fun show. So if you're ready to go on the road, I'm ready to go on the road, let's go on the road together, here we go. G'day, it's Scott Gibbons, and here we are. We're on the road, and what a fabulous time. And whether you've got a caravan, a motorhome, a camper trailer, uh, a tent, <laughs> whatever you've got, communication is one of those things you've got to have. Communication's one of those things you need to have, and the way to do that uh, generally is a, is a matter of having a UHF or maybe a sat phone or whatever it be. But the question often comes up is radio antenna, does the length really matter so you know you see some cars and their antennas are really long and you get others and they're really short so does the antenna length make any difference now without a hitch they did some research on this and, and what they've started with is they've said yes australia is a really large country and we have a small population and most of us live around the east and the southern coastlines and that results obviously in a number of challenges with different communicating systems and as they agree, everyone, about everyone now, has a mobile phone and there's large areas of the outback uh, where there is still, still no reliable service. So sat phones are now more readily available and they're not overly expensive anymore. By golly, the prices have come down hugely. So you can operate them really easily. So if you've been doing a big trip, a sat phone might be clever for you. Now, for those who want to stay in touch easily and maybe you're in a convoy of cars or whatever then you can just have your uhf which you get ultra high frequency it's that's what you see the truck is using and the caravan is using and all of that it's the cb radio network or you can get the hf which is the high frequency radio but the uhf that uses the 27 megahertz band it's relatively affordable it's an easy way of doing it you can buy uh, a uhf radio for not a lot of money, not a lot of money. Now, if you're going to buy a UHF radio, then of course, you're gonna get a GME, I would think, because they're Australian. They're, they're actually made here. They export them to the world. They make them here. So that's a GME. But the, you, they all use the 27 megahertz band. It's a very affordable way to communicate between vehicles. And uh, you've got the mobile phone towers, you've got satellites, you've got all of that. But when you're, a, you're on the road and you've got the trucks and the convoys and things, it's an easy way for you in your vehicle to be able to talk to the trucks and clear things and make sure that you know, traffic's good. If they want to get by, you can talk to them. They can talk to you as long as, of course, you're on the same channel. But UHF radios, they're limited by distance. So it's usually, usually either line of sight or longer if the UHF repeaters can be used. But just how far UHF radios can be used depends on the radio unit. So in a vehicle, a fixed radio with an external aerial, it'll typically have a much greater range than a handheld unit. So a 5-watt handheld radio compared to a 2-watt model, there's quite a few UHF radio manufacturers out there. And, and some of them, they'll, they'll start some of their models under $100 for a low-end handheld and up to over $600 for a, an in-dash unit. So UHF radio usually comes in three ratings. So the antenna, this is the antenna. You've got a, a, a 9 dBi, a 7 dBi, and a 2 dBi. Now the rating, the dBi, is also, it's, it's referred to as gain. 
And that's the focus of the radio frequency energy, if you will. So think of it as uh, the higher the game, the more focused the frequency energy pattern is broadcast. So it's, it's not as simple as just thinking that the higher gain is better because each dBi band has its own usefulness due to the way the environment interacts with the broadcast. So a high dBi will travel further, but it's more impacted by obstacles like hills and buildings and even trees because the more focused pattern is more easily disturbed. But a low gain has more spread more spread, so its broadcast frequency pattern is spread more, and it's less impacted by obstacles, making them more usable in the bush and the cities and, and hilly areas. So choosing the right antenna, an antenna with a high gain, say, the, the 9 dBi, uh, it's generally the best in outback conditions where the radios are in line of sight, because there's not too many hills. But they'll still work in the bush, but not as effectively as a low gain, uh, say a 3 dBi. So the compromise is usually you go from medium around a 5 to 7 dBi antenna, which is common in most off-the-shelf radio antenna bundles. So there's plenty of antenna types out there, and, and you might choose a vehicle roof, uh, your bonnet area, your bumper bar, your bull bar, your rhubarb, whatever it be. Now, HF radio, unlike UHF, HF is it's much more useful over longer distances, like you know, across the bulk of the country, if you will. And it can be used to connect into the telephone mobile network. Uh, if, if it's needed, the, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, that's what they use. It's known as, in the bush, it's known as the Flying Doctor Radio. So the HF radio is somewhat old technology, but to date, apart from satellite phones, there's nothing else that offers the equivalent for that communication medium. So using a HF radio, it's not as simple as a UHF. A UHF, basically, anybody can use. But a, 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 but a HF, you need a license to operate it. You need a license. It's, it's not a difficult license to acquire. Uh, you can go to a club like VKS, V for, v for uh, VKS, V for Victor Kilo Sierra uh, 737. That's what it's called, a club, VKS, which is Victor Kilo Sierra 737, or the Australian HF Touring Club. They're a good place to start if you want to learn more. Now, HF radio sets can be, can be quite expensive to buy. So, they need to be a fixed installation. They're not a handheld and they're not quite as intuitive as a UHF radio. For instance, when calling a base station, the correct frequency for the time of day and the distance must be selected. So your HF antenna in the mounting, there's two types of antenna to fit to a tow vehicle, an auto-tune, which is also known as automatic tuning, or a multi-tap. Now, the automatic tuning is the easiest to operate, and it does what it says. It automatically tunes itself to suit the frequency selected on the radio. Now, they do have moving parts, which require servicing, and they're considerably more expensive than the alternative, a multi-tap antenna. And that requires a manual selection of your desired frequency by plugging a wire into different locations on the antenna. It does limit the frequencies available on the radio, and they have to suit the license frequencies. So HF antennas, they're quite chunky. Um, the, the mounting's a bit tricky. The vehicle bull bar is obvious place, but that might restrict some visibility. So uh, Malcolm Street did all of that for, without a hitch. I think that's very, very good. But if you have a UHF radio, then you are terrific. If you don't have a UHF radio, then uh, and you need help, oh, by golly, you're, you're in problems. So make sure at least you have a good 
UHF radio and, and you might be fine. But if you need help, then you better get Johnny Farnham. Here's Johnny Farnham. He's got to sing help to you right now. So help, Johnny Farnham. Hey, it's Scott Gibbons. We're on the road. It's good being on the road with you. Hey, and if you want to, we've moved channel on the vast satellite network. So if you're nationally, if you're going around and, and you've got vast satellite network, then go on to channel 634 and you'll find us, Channel 634. And if you know somebody on the Vast Satellite Network and they've got it, make sure they go on to Channel 634. You'll hear the show. Hey, Scott Gibbons, here we go. Here's John Farnham. Help. Oh! 
Oh, yeah, Johnny Farnham and help. Now, the Nullarbor Plain, eh? Don't you all want to go there? I would reckon that's one of the places I have not been and I'm ready to go. So to understand the rich history of the Nullarbor, you need to understand a little bit of how it got its name. So back in 1866, there was a surveyor and, and he was working on the Nullarbor Plain and he took note of the significant lack of trees existing in the area. So he's credited with creating the name Nullarbor, which is Latin latin for no trees so don't let the name deceive you because it, it is barren in a few areas but there's specific trees and species everywhere and the local fauna spreads across the plains so prior to 1956 and that's when we had the olympics in australia and melbourne prior to 1956 the site was home to nullarbor station and covered you got to listen to this 1.25 million acres that's 1.25 million acres, and that's 2.7 times larger than Singapore. So if you've been to Singapore, and you know, like if it takes a bit to drive around, well, that's 2.7 times larger than Singapore. And there were paddocks of sheep and horses and cattle, and there were some wombats and there were some dingoes. So in 56, the station manager, his name was Elwyn, uh, the people knew him as Scobie. He decided to sell some petroleum to generate some additional revenue, and the petrol would be hand-pumped hand-pumped out of drums into one-gallon tanks and then sold to the locals and the visitors passing through. So there was a small shop then that they established, and that was in an old stone building. And it, it its products were more traditional than what you're likely to see in the shop today because you had tea, you had maybe some canned food, some biscuits, some lollies, and some cordial drinks, and that was, that was it. That made up the day's sales. Now, his wife, Coral, this is... Elwyn, known as Scobie, she'd occasionally cook up some homemade scones and, oh, jeez, well, I love some scones now. She'd cook up some scones and some cakes and occasionally any rabbits that they might have caught. And then she'd go on to write a book about her family life at Nullarbor Station in great detail. And the book is called Our Life at Nullarbor. Our Life at Nullarbor. And that little book, you can still buy it today. So if you're dropping by the roadhouse, pop in. And you can have, uh, maybe they've still got scones, I hope so, uh, and you can buy the book. So the shop's popularity continued to grow as the number of travellers passing through the area increased over time. And by 1976, upon completion of the Air Highway, the Nullarbor Roadhouse building was built. And the business then was formally established and the same building exists today. So that's just fabulous. Now, the Roadhouse has become a popular stopover for most travellers in part due to its isolation because it's approximately... 300 kilometres west of Sedona and 200 kilometres east of the South Australian, West Australian border. And as you can imagine, due to its location, the sun is always smiling over the Nullarbor. So during the summer, temperatures are oh, consistently rest in the high 30s and, and, and the Nullarbor doctor, 
That's the breeze that arrives nightly in the form of a cool southerly breeze and assures the rest of the evening is a little bit cooler. So that's nice. And and their, their isolation and their unique location means that there's nowhere else in the world like the Nullarbor. So in recent times, the, the owners there have looked to celebrate the history of the Nullarbor through murals and by accomplished mural artist Pam Armstrong, as well as providing shaded rest areas for the caravan park using materials on site that date back to the early days of the roadhouse. So they've built a scale model. Oh, this is fabulous. They've built a scale model of the old station garage, and that's been carefully recreated by an accomplished artist. That's Marty Powell and his team. And, and even on the Nullarbor, you can watch whales, whales up close. Uh, you can explore historic limestone caves. You can get uh, views of surreal cliff faces and you can play a hole on the world's longest golf course. <laughs> so, <laughs> or if you want to, just sit back, relax and watch a beautiful sunset over the Nullarbor Plain. So if you're looking to venture off the beaten track and try something different, then, then you've got to go to the Nullarbor. And there is so much more out there that you can do. Just so much more. It's just, it's just fabulous. So they've got... They've got things out there that you've got to see. So, but if you wanted to see the old Nullarbor Roadhouse, it's there. Uh, the Murrajini Caves, they're, they're, they're limestone caves and they're open to the public, but you've got to put your safety first. So before venturing off the air highway, uh, you've got to have a reliable vehicle and the access road's fairly rough. So two wheel drives just won't cut it. Uh, and within the caves, make sure you watch your step and don't approach any snakes. Don't <laughs> approach any snakes. Fairly safe there. Uh, then you've got the Bunda Cliffs. So along the Great Australian Bight, the Bunda Cliffs, they extend 200 kilometres between the head of the Bight and the border with, with Western Australia. And they're on the southern edge of the limestone slab, which forms the Nullarbor Plain and extends far inland along the base of the cliffs. So lighter in colour, you've got some parts of white, some parts of chalk. But if you want to go whale watching at the head of the Bight, then... Uh, the southern right whales, you can probably see them right up close because between May and October, which is the whale season, up to 100 whales reside along the 15-kilometre section of the coastline there. So the peak of the season is July to August and the head of the bite's 20k, about 20 kilometres to the east of the Nullarbor Roadhouse and the stunning cliffs provide a close-up view. So that's fabulous. And then we talked about if you want to play golf well, the Dingo's Den Golf Hole, it's part of the Nullarbor Links, which is regarded as the world's longest golf course. It stretches. You ready? <laughs> You're ready? For you don't have to walk it. I think if you take a car, it might be easier. 1,365 kilometres. <laughs> Isn't that fabulous? 1,365 kilometres. Starts in Kalgoorlie, West Australia, finishing at Saduna in South Australia. And the Dingo's Den Hole is the fifth hole on the course and it stretches 538 metres, making it uh, the only par five. So I think that's just terrific. So there you go. If you're going to go out there, I think you're just going to have a great time. So, uh, And they reckon the nights are fabulous. Uh, the mornings are just glorious. So why don't we enjoy the morning and we'll have, what about we have the Moya sisters with Good Morning, How Are You? Hey, what about that? Good morning, how are you, the Moya sisters? Here we go. Hey, it's Scott Gibbons. We're on the road and it's fabulous being with you. Don't forget, uh, we've now changed channels on the on the vast network, we're now channel 634. Channel 634, where you'll find more. So here we go. The Moyer Sisters, good morning, how are you?
Aren't the Boyer sisters fabulous? Aren't they just... I mean, their harmonies. Their harmonies just glorious. Now, Litchfield National Park, if you want to go somewhere, Litchfield National Park, that's got to be on your list, I reckon. It's perched near the northwest corner of the top end, and because of its uh, relative size, it's 1,500 square kilometres, it's often referred to as a mini kakadu, but it's not. It's not mini in anything that it has to offer. It's simply more condensed. So uh, the most popular destinations in the park, well, the most popular ones, you can get to by two-wheel drive. So uh, Linda Rathbun in uh, Go RV. She did a thing on this which is just so good. So the, the two-wheel drive, you can get to most of the popular spots, but if you're visiting Lichfield, you should be sure to include in your travels the magnetic termite mounds, uh, the Bewley Rock Hole, uh, which tumbles into the Florence Falls, the magnificent cascades of Tolma Falls and Wanji Falls. And if you've got a four-wheel drive and you've got a bit more ground clearance, then go to the Lost City because the nature's structural masterpiece is just a must. Now, the campsite's there. If you're towing a caravan, you can set up camp first. That's the best thing to do at one of the van parks around Bachelor or at the Wanji Falls van park. Now, there's no powered sites uh, but the uh, camper trailers and tents, you can set them up at Florence Falls and Bewley Rock Hole, and they're the closest campgrounds to the four-wheel drive tracks. And the Litchfield Tourist Park, it, it, it's just pretty. It's a shady park. It's close to the northeast boundary of Litchfield. And, and if you're not having a tow van, well, that makes it so much easier to explore the park. So And it's easier then also to to negotiate the hairpin bends and the steep... Uh, the steep descents and the uh, there's an 80 kilometre speed limit on, on the sealed section of, of Litchfield Park. Well, that's good. But the magnetic termite mounds, they're, they're just, you've got to see them. Uh, th- that would be about your first stop. It's about 17 kilometres beyond the eastern boundary of the park and the information bay, that'll explain how the mounds, uh, they've got a north-south point with their broad walls facing east-west. So that keeps the, the termites... <laughs> cool through the day and it's well worth a look before wandering the boardwalk to have a look at a few of the, the termite mounds. At Bewley Rock Hole and the Florence Falls, well that's about nine kilometres on, it's a turn off for Bewley Rock Hole, that's about three kilometres in and Florence Falls. Uh, now Bewley offers a campground about a 3.2k return bushwalk to Florence Falls and a safe swimming area there uh, and you've got a series of water holes that, oh, I would reckon they would rival some luxury resorts. I think they're just beautiful. Uh, now, the Florence Falls, well, you've got a four-wheel drive campground and that's got a couple of bushwalks there and a steep stairway dropping off to a, a safe swimming hole at the base of Florence Falls. And on a hot day, I would reckon you would say it's just sublime, <laughs> sublime. <laughs> the Lost City, well, back on the main sealed road, it's, it's about 7K to the Lost City. It's a four-wheel drive. As I say, you need low range and a little bit of higher suspension suspension, I would think, uh, and you can stop straight after turning onto the track, drop it into four-wheel drive low, and then it's a moderately easy drive after that. But after 9K, you'll start to see the stacked rock formations that give the Lost City its name, and another 2K on the track drops into a mild descent, and you'll find the car park. And you've got to pay close attention to where you're walking, uh, because uh, there's some arrows there for you to follow. But if you don't follow them, then you can become a little bit disoriented and lost, which is, we don't want to call the lost city for that reason at all. Uh, so, you know, just follow those little arrows. Then you've got Tolma Falls. So you continue on another 10K on the main sealed road to Tolma Falls turn off. 
and the lookout, oh, it gives you a sensational view over the falls. And the locals say that during the wet, you can feel the mist driven upwards by the thundering water. By golly, that sounds good, doesn't it? And there's another uh, return bushwalk. That's about a 1.6 return bushwalk. And that, that's around to the top of the falls. There's no access to the base, so that, that helps protect several species of bats that are living along the, the cliff walls there, so that's good. You've got Blythe Homestead, and that's a short drive along to uh, the, the Rennell River Track, which is the Litchfield Daly River Road, and it's, it's the Blythe Homestead Track. There'll be a creek crossing there almost immediately, which will require low range. And a little bit of caution because it tends to be a little bit murky and without a metre marker, it's difficult, difficult to gauge the depth. So you can expect a loose riverbed, small pebbles down the bottom, that sort of thing, but they're pretty to drive across. And the Blythe Homestead, well, it's worth a look because you'll see how the Sargent family, oh, they made a living out of the nearby creek by mining tin. And they settled there in 1929 and they stuck at it for over 30 years until the, the shack was abandoned in the early 60s. And then you got Tijanera Falls and, and that's about 2Ks along an access. Again, it's a four-wheel drive, but it's the highlight of the park. And you'll turn north on the track. It's a nice little sandy creek and the falls are just beautiful and you'll follow that along for about a K. And then there's a car park at the end of the track with a campground and you'll get some Put your walking shoes on, <laughs> pack some water, uh, grab a bit of a picnic if you've got it, some bathers, a plastic bag so you can bring your rubbish back with you, uh, and a towel, and you'll just walk beside Sandy Creek for about 1.7k thereabouts to a plunge pool at the base of the Tijanera Falls. So you can linger there for a picnic and enjoy a swim, and uh, it's just going to be pretty. And then return to the Reynolds River track the same way that you came in. Oh, by golly. And when you get back to camp, well, it's just going to be beautiful. So then you've got 59k of unsealed section back along and you get to Walker Creek and the Cox Peninsula Road. So, oh, you are in for a top time. You're in for a top time. I reckon if you don't do that, you're a bit of a fool. <laughs> I'm being polite. I'm being polite. But if you've got to do it, it's a good way to introduce Ray Brown the Whispers, isn't it? Hey, bit of fool, fool, fool. Here's Ray Brown the Whispers. You enjoy that. Oh, he's good. We love Ray Brown, don't we? We do. We like in his music to us. So here we go. Hey, it's Scott Gibbons. The show is called On the Road. It's great being on the road with you. It is so good. And for those of us that can get on the road, by golly, by golly, don't we miss it? Doesn't it make you feel good that you can miss something so beautiful and when it gets given back to you again? <gasps> You do appreciate it. So here's Ray Brown. Phil, Phil, Phil. Here we go. All righty. First I bought my love of mockingbird For the sweetest voice that I have ever heard she said that mockingbird won't sing If you love me, go buy a diamond ring So I bought my love a diamond ring The brightest ring that anyone could bring But she said that diamond ring won't shine If you love me, go buy a car this time
Oh, Ray Brown. So good. So good. We like Ray Brown. We really, really do. Now, there's other things you could like. You could go onto our Facebook page and like that. That's called On The Road Media Australia. On The Road Media Australia. You go on there, like the page, and you'll find so much more information about so many things. And of course, you can go onto our website, ontheroadmedia.com.au, ontheroadmedia.com.au, and you'll have all the podcast there. So if you're going on a trip and you want to listen to more and more and more of the show, then you can, uh, which is terrific. But in the meantime, you might want to just wander around the Wattigans. And and, uh, I think that would be a great idea because Greg Powell from What's Up Down Under, he did a beard thing on the Wattigans because the Wattigans is so pretty. If you haven't been to the Wattigans, uh, then it's it's so close to Sydney, so close, because it's just inland from Newcastle and Lake Macquarie. It's a coastal area. It's in New South Wales, obviously. But you've got uh, lovely areas, and you'll pop in and out of various things because you've got the Wattigans National Park. You've got the Jillaby State Conservation Area, Olney State Forest, Heaton State Forest, Wattigan State Forest. Uh, just lovely. So some of the main things you'll do is there's the Gap Creek Lookout to... Uh, monkey face lookout and the Wadigan mountains provides oh so many scenic lookouts and one of the shortest walking tracks but with one of the most impressive views runs between those two lookouts so monkey face lookout it provides rural views over the farms of martinsville valley and the mountain ranges beyond and gap creek that's bangalore road well you can follow that all the way through to Mount Fork Road to the picnic area at the end. And along the way, you'll pass the small roadside camping area. Now, the track starts at a very scenic, oh, very, very scenic picnic area, about 400 metres of flat walk. And there's a sign there beside a huge fallen forest giant. You you won't miss it. (laughs) Well, I hope you do miss it. (laughs) Now, from the stump, the track descends very steeply, uh, roughly 333 Uh, Not too smooth steps, but, you know, if you're fit, you can do it. Uh, And what's known as Gap Creek Falls. Now, its historic name is Browns Falls, but they now call it Gap Creek Falls. And it's a spectacular waterfall. In fact, it's one of the best 
in the whole Hunter region. And the water topples oh, from the rim of the cliffs. It drops about 40 metres to a shallow pool below. And then back up at the top, you turn off the rainforest track at the big stump. And it's a magical flat walking track to Rainforest Creek. So I had one of our, one of our listeners, Ling Pei, uh, she said to us, she said, the safest holiday... At the moment, you know, with COVID going on, the safest holiday is just to listen to the show. I think that's a lovely thing. Thank you, Ling Pei. You're terrific. So uh, Heaton Loop Trail and Heaton Trail, well, those short walks are located near the best vantage point in the Watkins and Heaton Lookout, which is access from the Heaton Road, from Mount Fork Road. Well, the view takes in the whole coastal plain from Port Stephens all the way through to the entrance. Oh, now there's toilets there. There's picnic tables, there's wood for the fireplaces, it's all there. Just check that you're allowed to to actually create a fire. And the walking track's part of the Great North Walk, so it's a long-distance walking track. It's 250k if you want to really get it going. 250 Stretches from Newcastle's foreshore to Sydney's Circular Quay. My golly, my golly. Uh, Abbott's Falls, you've got Abbott's Falls. That's located, it's a very scenic little grotto along the headwaters of Dora Creek, and it's an eight-kilometre walk. Uh, it's more for the more experienced walker. It starts at the end of the road at the Pines Picnic area. And after about an hour's descent, well, the falls are located just downstream of the creek crossing. But you, know, you need a little bit of care because there's a bit of an escarpment there. So be careful. And the walking track continues steeply up to German Point Road, which can be followed for about 3k back to the Wadican Forest Road. Oh, beautiful. Then you've got Rock Lily Walk. You'll love that one. Uh, Rock Lily Walk is just pretty, pretty, pretty. You've got Muir's Lookout. That walk starts near the car park behind the walk sign and the Fernie route uh, heads around the spurs and then descends into the gully at a signposted left turn. And the Bangalore Palms in that area, uh, in the gu- they're just magnificent. It's, it's just a real feature of the walk. And the track eventually reaches the road junction just above the picnic area. And it's about an hour of, of lovely, lovely, lovely exploration. Then you've got the Boarding House Dam. That's a terrific thing to do. Uh, the Boarding House Dam, well, it, if you're a real walker, it's a bit of a must to do because you, you've got to do it. And if you're lucky enough to have it all to yourself, it can be what they term quite a spiritual experience. So the track heads downstream from the picnic area beside the dam and then left turn at the bridge and that'll bring you through an open grey myrtle forest to the awe-inspiring moss wall. So when you see that moss wall, you go, oh, look at that. So there you go. And the track heads straight as an arrow along the base of the wall, which demands a photo. So make sure you've got your iPhone or your smartphone or your camera or whatever you've got because you want the photo there. You want to show somebody that can't actually do it. Now, at the end of the wall, there's a new wooden bridge which crosses Conjua Creek and the track continues through the Myrtle to the top bridge and then returns to the picnic area, uh, Hunter and McLean's lookouts. And those lookouts, you just get a, a fabulous view right across Port Stephens, the Barrington Tops and then beyond. And then there's a short walking track that links the two lookouts and both sides have got terrific featured areas. So there you go. So you, you're just going to have... A terrific time if you do that. And and if you're there, I mean, take something warm to wear because, you know, it can get a little bit cold in the afternoon, but, you know, it gets about twilight. Oh, pretty, pretty, pretty. And the stars are going to come out. And if it's twilight time, well, Billy Thorpe's going to sing twilight time to you right now. So you ready for Billy Thorpe? I reckon you would be. Here's Billy Thorpe, twilight time. Here we go.
Uh, Billy Thorpe, Twilight Time. Doesn't Billy just have the best voice? Well, he did. He did. Flying Doctor. Hey, when you want to talk about icons, when you want to talk about great things, and and a world leader in whatever they do is the Royal Flying Doctor Service. The Royal Flying Doctor. Now, I don't know whether you know how the Royal Flying Doctor came about, but in 1927, a Presbyterian pastor by the name of Reverend John Flynn, he founded the Flying Doctor, and his vision was to put a mantle of safety around the people of Australia's remote communities after he witnessed their daily struggles firsthand. And the idea of using aviation to bring medical help to the outback, well, that came in a letter that Flynn received in 1917. And the letter's author was an enthusiastic young medical student, an airman, a war hero, and his name was Peel, Clifford Peel, Lieutenant Clifford Peel. And he was shot down in France at the age of just 24. Sadly, he never knew he provided the blueprint for what would become one of the world's first aeromedical services. And the seed of Peel's idea took root. A man gave his life and then gave one of the finest ideas that the world has ever seen. So it took Flynn 10 years of tireless campaigning to turn his vision into reality. And he held firm to the belief that if you start something worthwhile... Nothing can stop it. How good is that? If you start something worthwhile, nothing can stop it. So he had a meeting with a fellow called Alfred Traeger, 
And that was an instrumental meeting in the establishment, if you will, of the early success of the Royal Flying Doctor Service of Australia. So Tregear uh, had an interest in radio for much of his life. And during the 20s, he was contacted by Reverend John Flynn to assist in experiments which were to enable remote families access to medical treatment by using radio equipment. That's exactly what they're doing today with the internet, isn't it? Like they're, they're providing internet where they can get signal, providing internet so that the people there can talk to doctors back in the big smoke somewhere. So this has started it all off back in 1917. And Tregear subsequently, uh, or consequently, developed the pedal radio, which was a radio transmitter receiver powered by pedal-driven generators. So if you can imagine... You want to talk to the doctor. You've got to have somebody there that can ride a bike, basically, so that they can pedal the generator to give the electricity, because they didn't have electricity. Like out in the bush, they're still struggling for mobile phone signal. They still struggle for internet signal. And back then, they were struggling to get electricity. So they didn't have it. So you had to pedal a generator. How good was that? And from there... They got a bequest from a long-time supporter, Mr H.V. McKay, Mackay, and he gave Flynn the opportunity to get a flying doctor service airborne. And after meeting Hudson Fish, who was the founder of the fledgling airline called Qantas. <laughs> Remember Qantas? Yes. So you, you may have flown with them. We haven't flown with them for some time now. But Flynn signed an agreement to lease a biplane. A biplane's got two wings, called Victory, and operate an aerial ambulance from Cloncurry, in Queensland. So the original name was the Australian Aerial Medical Service and soon they changed the name to the Flying Doctor Service of Australia and their inaugural flight was on the 17th of May 1928 because an emergency call came through or came in from Julia Creek, the Julia Creek Bush Nursing Home and that was about 60 miles from Cloncurry. So the pilot, Arthur Affleck and Dr Kenyon St Vincent Welsh they took off in a single engine, de Havilland 50 biplane. And the two patients that Dr. Welsh operated on that day both survived. So the legend of the flying doctor was born. Now, when they landed, you didn't have airstrips. You had a, you had a panic. Like the pilots then were just superstars. So the flying doctor then, in 1929, 28, 29, the, the fly, they had a doctor, a pilot, and John Flynn and the man with the vision, but they lacked communication technology to deliver medical services efficiently. Helped hurdle that barrier when he was commissioned by Flynn to develop a pedal-powered... So in about the 30s then, the pilot, Arthur Affleck, he was flying with the aerial medical service and he recalled that on one particular flight with Reverend John Flynn and Dr Bill Cornford to Cuyuna... Excessive heat in the cockpit made him feel drowsy. And he was roused by the sound of an explosion. Fortunately, he was roused because uh, the aircraft had an explosion and he correctly suspected that one of the plane's tyres had burst. I mean, what a story. Like, you've got no communication, no radio, no GPS, no help, and you've got the doctor on board. But through a communication tube that ran from outside the cockpit to the cabin, Affleck prepared Flynn and Cornford for a crash landing. And, and he wondered, you know, whether they would um, survive. And, and if Flynn died, would that mean the end of the Flying Doctor? And the landing was brutal, <laughs> brutal landing, but successful. And Flynn complimented Affleck on saving their lives with his remarkable skill. So uh, the southeastern section, that was for New South Wales, that was formed to bring faster medical assistance to the Broken Hill region. 
So the Broken Hill base was established in, in 1937. They had a de Havilland 83 Fox Moth. That was their first aircraft, and that was chartered by the Broken Hill base. Now, if you go to Broken Hill, you can have a tour of the Flying Doctor service there. I've done that. Oh, by golly, is that good. So they, they got their first Flying Doctor uh, in, in about 1937. Around about 39, Dr Keith Sweetman, a, a Flying Doctor based at Wyndham in Western Australia, he saw the telehealth was of limited value in the absence, oh, this is good, in the absence of pre-positioned medications for patients to access. So he realised that considerable radio time was being wasted by questioning patients on what was available in their first aid kits because everybody around Australia, with all the different properties, they would have, if you will, a first aid kit, but everything was in a different location so that you know, the little yellow bottle might be on the top shelf on one and it might be down the bottom shelf on another. So... Most people just had a haphazard collection of, of the patient medicines. And he suggested standardising, just a genius, standardising the medical equipment held in the remote location so the people at those locations could self-administer treatment under the instruction of the doctor through the radio. Is that clever, is that? And that same system is used today. So every property that's got a flying doctor medical kit, everything is in the same spot all the way around Australia. So when they say, go to this Everybody can just reach for the correct medicine, the correct vial of whatever they need. So they changed the name to the Flying Doctor Service in 1950. And then, uh, unfortunately, Dr. Flynn, John Flynn, he, he died the following year. But uh, Sister Myra Blanche was the first nursing sister to work for the Flying Doctor. She moved to, from Sydney to Broken Hill. Uh, and she said one of the chief problems is how to keep in touch with those families which are not on the pedal radio network. And the only way for those folk who are on the air is to keep a, a watchful eye on those who are not. So that service was freely given to the people of the outback by their neighbours as well. And in 1950, Sister Lucy Garlic, she was stationed in Derby with the Flying Doctor Service. And she was instrumental in the establishment of an infant health centre in East and West Kimberley. By golly, is this a great story or is this a great story? It's just, this is just monumental. It's fabulous. Australian ingenuity at its best. So there you go. So the Flying Doctor Service founder, John Flynn, well, he died, as we mentioned, 1951. But his pioneering work was continued and everything just went on there just beautifully. So in about 1957... Uh, they were celebrating the issue of the Royal Flying Doctor Service stamp. So there you go. Just wonderful. Now you can, when you go to Dubbo, you can do a visit of the facilities there. And you, they even made a TV show. Do you remember the TV show? It was called The Flying Doctors and Crawford Productions did it. That series ran for 221 episodes over eight years and just told the inside stories. And by golly, so many people... I just love The Flying Doctor. It's one of the charities that I support each year because I just think, you know, if, if we're out there, if we're a grey nomad, if, if we're touring, if we've got a camper trailer, if we've got a tent and we're out and something bad happens and you can't get to a proper hospital, maybe, maybe The Flying Doctor can come to you. And I think that is just genius. So um, they even do uh, open heart surgery. Open heart surgery. They've done that. They've done it all. So you know, health care, whatever, dental services, they're working on that. So if, if you've got a charity, if you want a charity, then I reckon that's the one because you've just got to ring them up and they're there. Now, if you're going to ring them up and they are there, then that would be, I would reckon, like the telephone to glory or the royal telephone, Jimmy Little. Do you remember Jimmy Little? Jimmy Little saying, it was called the telephone to glory 
and some people called it the Royal Telephone, and I reckon Jimmy's going to sing that for us now. So here he is, Jimmy Little. You enjoy that. Hey, it's Scott Gibbons. We're on the road. Great to be on the road with you. Don't forget, we're on the road media Australia. If you want to go onto our Facebook and like that, On The Road Media Australia. If you want to go to the website, ontheroadmedia.com.au. Ontheroadmedia.com.au. But in the meantime, hey, you enjoy this. And Jimmy Little, hey, we miss you, mate. Telephone to glory, oh, what joy divine. I can feel the current moving on the line. Busy, always on the line. You can hear from heaven almost any time. Tis a royal service built for one and all. When you get in trouble, give this royal line a call. Telephone to glory, oh, what joy divine! I can feel the current moving on the line. charges telephone is free it is built for service just for you and me there will be no waiting on this royal line telephone to glory always answers just in time telephone to glory oh what joy divine Oh, Jimmy Little, what a honey, honey smooth voice he had. Just fabulous. Now, I just I just got a thing on uh, Facebook from a friend of mine, Terry, and she's out caravanning at the moment, having a wonderful time. And I, and I just sent her a thing saying, is there anything you've learnt? And straight away she came back and she said, well, we've learnt that it's not always best to be right on the waterfront as it can be very windy. Hey, good point. Also, it's a good idea to pull in the awning the afternoon before leaving when it's dry. That's clever, because if the wind gets up, it can blow your awning. If it blows your awning, it can do a heap of damage. So, yeah, good thing, Terry. Another thing is to clean the mesh windscreens on the windows of your van together. So she's saying put one person on the outside, one person on the inside, and you clean your mesh screens so you know they're done properly in and out. And it's always handy. Oh, this one's a good one. Thanks for this one, Terry. It's always handy to have spare lengths of hoses and extra fittings when you arrive and someone else is using your utilities. Oh, isn't that clever? It's always handy to have spare lengths of hoses and extra fittings for when you arrive and someone else is using your utilities. Oh, by golly. Yeah, good one. Thanks for that. 
Here's some other hints for you. Thanks, Terry. It's great that you're listening. It's lovely that you react so quickly to all of that. So Brisbane to Broome, if you're doing a Brisbane to Broome trip, oh, this was terrific. It came through, I think, on uh, Club 4x4. And and these people went from Brisbane to Broome and they uh, they documented some of the things they learned in each of the areas. So in Queensland, they learned don't relax so much that you forget to keep on top of the weather forecast. <laughs> Some detours can be costly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always take a torch when walking to... Oh, this is good. Take a torch when walking to a lookout to view the sunset. Otherwise, the walk back to the campsite in the dark might involve kicking a cane toad or two out of the way. Oh, yes. Avoid arriving at campsites late or in the dark and finding that level. Space for the van in the dark is not worth the angst. Try to avoid camping near where large animals frequent, unless you like flies. Oh, good point. And pack a 12-volt van, a van, F-A-N, pack a 12-volt fan, because it runs for about six hours when not on a powered site, (laughs) can save a marriage, they reckon. (laughs) A 12-volt fan, that's a very, very good idea. Very good. Yeah, nice thing. So there's, there's different things that you can learn. Uh, they, they learned some other things in the Northern Territory. They said to ensure that you have one or two pool noodles packed. That's clever. Book the Sunset River Cruise at Catherine Gorge, which allows you to get up close and personal to the gorges. You won't regret that, they reckon. There are crocodiles in the water at Catherine Gorge, uh, so definitely no swimming there. Be on the lookout for crocs when walking across the bridge at Timber Creek Caravan Park. Oh, <laughs> Look out for crocs when walking across the bridge at the Timber Creek Caribbean. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do the Kimberley Wetland Safari on the Ord River Dam. Uh, that's Lake Argyle. Uh, and and a, it's another tour, but you won't regret it. Uh, they like a drink in the Northern Territory, and that's not a reference to the water. And don't ever think it's safe to take a wee walk in croc-infested waters. Oh, yeah, don't do that. So, and then in Western Australia, they learned it's easy and expensive to leave your van behind at Kununurra uh, at the Hidden Valley Caravan Park. So it's inexpensive. It's not expensive to leave your van behind. And then you can go touring without the van and you know your van should be safe and, and still be there when you get back. A sleeping in tents makes a pleasant change from the van, but choose a tent that's quick to erect and to ensure that your vehicle carries a fridge freezer. Ah, good point, good point. Check local agents for deals on any tours or safaris you're considering, because sometimes the prices can be competitive. That's a good point, isn't it? That's a good point. Check when it's stinger season. (laughs) Oh, yes. You just do not want to get stung. If you love the markets, try the broom markets, which have food stalls and handmade jewellery and clothes and pearls, and and also the Kununurra markets as well. Elquestro is worthwhile, especially Explosion Gorge and Branker Lookout. So it is croc country there, so beware when walking and swim only, only at the designated swimming areas. Now, audio books are good for long road days, aren't they? Ever uh, choose an author you both like? I don't know. I think they're all good. You're going to get into it. Check out Wiki Camps to see what sort of sites are around the area. Uh, there's nearly a Toyota dealer in every town. Have your car serviced when it's due. Even when travelling. So if you're travelling, have your car serviced when it's due. Have your van serviced when it's due. Buy a copy of the book Camps Australia Wide. It'll come in handy. Upload the Wikicamps app to help search for future locations. And uh, that's only useful in areas with Wi-Fi. The Gibb River, Mitchell Falls and Kalamburu roads are not 
good for caravans unless you've got a four-wheel drive type van, an off-road van which handles the rough roads. And if you haven't seen, uh, let's see, when you start pointing towards home, <laughs> you tend to do more miles. Isn't that true? And don't we just love the lazy life of touring? Don't we just love it? I mean, that's what we want to do. We just want to get out there, see Australia, see beautiful things, take photos, do all the things. We just love the lazy life. And if you love the lazy life, hey, what about Heart and Soul singing to you? Here's Heart and Soul. All the music we play is Australian. We only try, or we try to only play Australian music. And Heart and Soul, you haven't heard this for so long. This came Oh, it's from the 60s, so you'll love it. It's called Lazy Life. I think it's got to be an anthem for the Grey Nomads. Anybody that's out there touring, anybody that's enjoying just getting out there, whether you're in a, a motorhome or a camper trailer or a tent or a caravan, whatever it be, even if you're sleeping in the back of the car, the Lazy Life. Here we go. You enjoy that. Hey, it's Scott Gibbons. This show is called On the Road. Love being on the road with you. Here we go.
<laughs> lazy life. That's the way it should be, eh? Lazy life. But you've got to get out there and do your thing. One of the things you've got to do is to make a fire. You know when you go camping, you just love a fire, and there's three foolproof techniques to light your fire. And Camper Trader Life Australia had them in there recently, and the first one is called the teepee. You know the American Indian type of, of tent? So it's, you, you put your sticks down. So it's, it's the most popular of fire-building techniques. A teepee, it's, it's, a, it's simple. Uh, you simply arrange the kindling in a circle with the base spread out wider, and then the tops lean in, and they meet at the tip. And then you put your fire starters inside the teepee in the centre, and the trick is not to add too many layers to the outside of the teepee as you go, so that it allows the gaps for the oxygen to be drawn in to feed the fire. And as the fire takes hold and grows, then you can add more layers, and that increases the diameter of the wood, or you can increase the diameter of the wood as you go. And that's good. And then you have the lean-to. Now, that's where you get a log, and you, and you lay the log down, and then you get some other kindling, and you lay that over the log. So some of the, the kindling's touching the ground and leaning across the log. So that's good. Uh, and, and so one end's on the ground, one end's on the log, and then you place your fire starters under the kindling, you light it up, and once again, the idea is to allow the fire to draw the oxygen in from the bottom. And, and that method allows you to keep adding wood to the top without blocking the oxygen from entering the bottom. And that uh, it starts heating the larger main log right from the start so that's good and then you have what they call the jenga box so if you can't get a fire going with this technique they reckon it's time to quit camping so you simply start by putting your fire starters on the ground and then layering up your sticks around them to build a square so you put two sticks parallel to each other so you say about 10 inches apart eight inches apart whatever it be a foot apart if you want and then two more the other way so you've got two and then two, and then you keep on doing that, two and two, just like a Jenga, if you're doing you know, those Jenga sticks and whatnot. So the two sticks go on top uh, facing each other and then two more facing the other way until the, the structure starts looking a bit like a box. And if the wood's nice and dry, good technique is to build the fire upside down. So you put the larger logs on the bottom and then placing your fire starters and kindling at the top. And then once lit, the fire will burn downwards, effectively feeding itself. So that's clever. That is clever. And, and when you're talking about feeding yourself, then you've got to talk about how to make an omelette. If you're going to make an omelette, oh, you're ready for, for a quick little recipe? Well, you, this is going to serve about four to six of you. So you just get eight large eggs, half a cup of light cream. Get your pencil handy because you need eight large eggs, half a cup of light cream, a half to one cup of shredded cheese. Now, that could be cheddar cheese, could be tasty cheese, whatever you prefer. And then a cup of cooked ham, chopped, chopped, chop, 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 chop. And then two to four spring onions, again, finely chopped, or you can use chives, so chop, chop, chop. And then half a small to medium onion, finely chopped if you want it. So you've got two to, two to four spring onions and then one to two or you work it out how much flavoring you want whether it's a small to medium onion anyway and then salt and pepper if you want it that's all there uh, your preparation and cooking time is going to be about five to ten minutes your cooking time is going to be about 25 to 30 minutes depending upon how deep your dish is so you preheat your oven or your camp oven and its temperature should be about 200 degrees you grease a pan 20 or 23 centimeter square 
baking dish or use a square deep-sided foil tray. Use a dish that fits inside your camp oven, that's important. And in a, in a large bowl, whisk the eggs, the milk and the cream. Add the remaining ingredients, stir in until well blended. Pour the ingredients into a prepared baking dish and place it on the hot oven. Bake it for about 25 minutes or till it's golden brown and cook right through and that should suit you just fine. Ah, and then you can add whatever you want. If you want to add extra things like mushrooms or tomatoes or bacon or cooked sausage pieces or capsicum or spinach or fresh herbs, whatever you want to do. I'm not one of those things that you can just do what you want to do. And I think that's part of the best fun about it. I think that's it. Now, I did promise you last week, I said I'd give you a couple of other Australian products. So Aussie sauce, Aussie Australian tomato sauce. You'll find in the supermarkets now. And what you've got to do is have a look at how much Australian content is on anything you're buying. So Aussie Sauce is 100% Aussie owned. It's 99% Aussie ingredients. And it's just fabulous. Really, really good. I'm using it. It's fabulous. Uh, the, the other thing you've got to look at is where things come from. So you've got Westmont Pickles, and they're Australian. So if you go in and you're looking at buying pickles, you'll find a lot of them from India, a lot of them from Poland, various places, but Westmont are Australian. So that's terrific. You've got to do that. And then if you want something that's already pre-done, there's On The Menu. It's a brand called On The Menu. Again, you should find in the supermarkets. The beef lasagna on that, they tell me, is quite terrific. So On The Menu, beef lasagna, again, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. And that's what we do. That's what we try and do, isn't it? That's... Part of what this whole show is about is we get out to see Australia, but we buy Australian as well. And if you can get something that's Aussie, hey, we keep our mates in jobs. And that's what it is all about. Every now and then, every now and then, you can just do the right thing every time you try it. And I think when you go to a restaurant and they're offering you, you know, fish or whatever it be, uh, or especially pork, You've got to ask them, is this Aussie? And if it's not Aussie, well, you don't have it. Let them be stuck with it because we've got to start teaching people all about Aussie stuff. I think that's the joy. That is the joy. So I reckon we've run out of time again. Can you believe it? We've run out of time again. And we have been having such a good time. So we've got to wait a whole week again. So if you want to, you can find more of us on On The Road Media. .com.au, ontheroadmedia.com.au, or you can Facebook us On The Road Media Australia. The On The Road Media Australia. If you'd like that page, gee, that would be terrific. That would be just excellent. I reckon we should have a bit more music. What do you reckon? We'll just see ourselves out with a little bit more music. What do you reckon we should go with now? I reckon, what about a little bit of, oh, what about Dig Richards, hey? It's, it's not bedtime yet, but, it's, you know, Dig, Dig Richards is good. What about Raincoat on the River? I think you might like this one. You probably haven't. Again, because I try and find music that you haven't heard sometimes. So if you're driving along, you get to hear something and you you may remember some of the words and you'll enjoy it. So here we go. Dig Richards, Raincoat on the River. Hey, my name's Scott Gibbons. Gee, it's good being with you. You get onto us anytime you like. You get on the website, ontheroadmedia.com.au or Facebook us, On The Road Media Australia. And you like that page and that would be just terrific. In the meantime, you drive safe and I'll see you on the road.
like never before. It ain't gonna rain, gonna rain no more now. My baby's coming back to me, yeah, yeah. Ah, now my baby's coming back to me. Mm, can't you see my raincoat in the river? I know we're gonna share another sweet embrace now My baby's coming back to me, yeah, yeah Oh, now my baby's coming back to me You know the rain's been a-drippin', been a-drip, drop a-drippin' That's why I say I'm gonna throw my raincoat in the river, gonna toss my umbrella in the sea, the sun's gonna shine like never I'm gonna th-